0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. Today's conversation is on women with incarcerated loved ones with Gina Clayton Johnson.
1: Isn't that nice?
0: Imagine a time in your life where you were excited to start something new, to go in a completely different direction. Maybe you were starting a new job or moving to another city or going off to college, and you get a phone call and in that phone call you learn that someone that you love has been sentenced to 20 years in prison. Think about that for a moment. The juxtaposition of the life you were going to have against the experience of the person that you love is about to have 20 years of their life gone. And that's exactly what happened to today's guest, Gina Clayton Johnson. She was a youth organizer in the NAACP and she led campaigns that addressed campus policing, voter registration, and state sentencing laws. But during her first year as a student at Harvard Law School, someone Gina Loves was sentenced to 20 years in prison. She got that phone call. And that phone call completely changed the direction of her life and her focus. Gina Clayton Johnson founded the SE Justice Group. It's an organization that focuses on the unique needs and struggles of women with incarcerated loved ones. You know, we have an epidemic of mass incarceration in this country. The US has the highest incarceration rate in the world. 70 million people in the U.S. have criminal records, and there are 7 million children who have an incarcerated parent. You know, the emotional and financial impact reverberates for generations, and women primarily shoulder that burden, both the financial and the emotional burden. That is the focus of the SE Justice Group. You know, they're tackling this from all angles, and we really need this work more than ever, which is exactly why I was so excited to have Gina Clayton Johnson on today. So here is Gina describing how that phone call that she received as a young college student changed her forever.
1: You know, I I grew up um, biracial, binational, black woman, growing up, speaking two languages, navigating two cultures. And I think I've always been deeply upset by inequality. And I devoted my life, even before going to law school, devoted a lot of my attention, I don't know if my life at that point, I was pretty young, to uh, social justice work, and I was doing kind of organizing in Los Angeles, and um, I was just really interested and and compelled to understand the root of injustice and the roots of inequality that I had that I had seen through my life, um, even while well, very young. And it was the desire to bring tools and solutions and access. Back to the communities that I care about and come from that took me to law school in the first place. So I didn't go to law school because I wanted to be a corporate attorney. <laughs> I went because I wanted to do, uh, to improve myself as, as an advocate working alongside communities I deeply care about, particular, in particular, black communities in Los Angeles. But when I was there, I certainly didn't you know, expect that I myself would have an experience that was so. Um, that that put me i think so up close to what was happening in our criminal justice system and to millions and millions of people i'll never forget that call when i <laughs> when i came to learn that someone that i love was, was being sentenced to 20 years in prison you know the feelings of bewilderment and helplessness like i i remember distinctly going to criminal law class and studying these cases that had long since passed or hypotheticals and going home to write a letter to a real sentencing judge in California to plea for leniency. And, you know, it was, uh, it was bizarre. Um, And yet it woke me up and it woke me up to seeing the senseless devastation of mass incarceration policy up close. And it, it forever changed my life and my career.
0: Yeah. You know, I was thinking a lot about your experience and trying to picture myself back in college and what that must have felt like, you know, getting that call. And, you know, I realized that, you know, if you're a black person in America, the possibility of getting a phone call like this, you know, it's always with us, whether it's subconscious or it's conscious or whether it's, you know, someone in your family or whether it's a childhood friend, you know, with the rates of mass incarceration here and the fact that black Americans are incarcerated at, I think, you know, five times the rate of, of white Americans that, you know, that possibility that this could happen to someone that, you know, it's never lost on you.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think for me as well, you know, this is always something that was that was all around me. And whether or not we talk about it, um, whether or not it's something that all of our families, I think, come into contact with it at some point. If you're if you're a black family in the United States, it's just a reality. One in two black women in the U.S. has a family member in prison. You know, it is a huge number of black and brown families who, like you said, understand the daily reality of mass incarceration in our lives. And I think you know i come to this issue really with a sense of of optimism i think ultimately like this is you know i weighed every day in in a lot of the heaviness of this work and yet i think seeing the ways in which families and and for me you know women in particular in their leadership during these times of deep social and moral crisis in our country it's their leadership that um, has me believing that we will find our way out of this. That has been the way that I've been able to kind of move forward and and be excited to build. And I, I think that the more that we can kind of highlight that as part of the criminal justice narrative, as much as as we do the problems um, that that do need, uh, attention and need to be seen the more people we will have at the table to really take this issue you know by its horns and 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 tackle it down so
0: but I know you worked in a public defense office right that must have informed your work to, to some extent
1: yeah you know when I when I left law school I ended up at a public defense office where I think for me everything really changed when I started meeting more and more and more women and families and 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 being um, even more in the trenches of what incarceration and the impact of incarceration really looks like that I was able to start to see opportunities for for transformative changes to occur.
0: Yeah. You know, our culture treats criminals as discardable. And you know, once you go behind those those bars, right? It doesn't matter what your offense is, you just kind of become invisible, you know? And I guess the cruelest part, you know, when I was reading about this and reading about what your organization does is that when the loved ones of an incarcerated person, they also, in a sense, become invisible. You know, even the children, you know, the partners, the spouses, you know, the parents. So when you started researching this, were there any services for families and children and siblings and spouses of incarcerated people?
1: Not enough. Um, There are absolutely organizations oftentimes started by women, I found, um, who had loved ones behind bars who were then trying to use their own Knowledge of the system to to start a support group or to build and put together a resource guide for the for their area. But you know, when I started SE Justice Group, there was certainly no national support and advocacy group for and of women with incarcerated loved ones. And that to me seems so absurd. Like here we have. One in four women in the United States who has a family member in prison and and you look at the history of women in movements and how critical the voice of women have been. You look at the power of like mothers against drunk driving who, because of having experienced loss, came together from that place of pain and loss to change thousands of laws in this country. Um it felt to me absurd that we were not kind of doubling down on the resilience and the leadership and the strategy that women are in a micro way employing every single day to kind of keep their families afloat, to bring people back from jails and prisons successfully and reenter them into society and community and family. You know, why were we not seeing these kinds of solutions be the things that we were deferring to in, in legislative policy and our strategies for organizing? Um, I remember last year, I think year and a half ago, I was, I, I was at an event and I uh, pulled aside Eric Holder, who I happened to, for whatever reason, be in the same space with. And I, you know, I, I said to him, you know, you've been talking about reentry and what I've never heard you say, or quite frankly, anyone with the kind of prominent position and the ability to invest real money into reentry support and reentry, what I mean by that is when someone comes home from prison, um, the, they're reentering into community and family. What we never talk about is that women are the reentry system of this country. It is, you know, mothers and sisters and daughters and wives and girlfriends, grandmothers who are. Um, who are co-piloting that process from when somebody comes home from a loved one comes home from prison or from jail and ensuring and doing everything, you know, from financial support to emotional support, to connections with children and other sorts of resources, of course, and that is being held by women. And I think that, you know, as we have these conversations about criminal justice System and there are the huge problems with our current criminal legal system. We need to look at what is already happening in order to find out what are the strategies we need to double down on.
0: Well, I guess I want to know what Eric Holder said.
1: <laughs> what you did he what? say? <laughs> you know what he did? He put. I will never forget. He put his his hand on my arm and he grabbed me like this was the first time he'd ever heard this before. And he said, "I, I've just never even thought about that, and I'm embarrassed." He said, "I'm embarrassed that I." I've never thought about that, and it makes so much sense. Um, You know, and and for that moment, I was like, can I just pull out my iPhone uh, recorder (laughs) (laughs) really quick and have you on record saying that? Um, But, you know, this is this is the response that I I think we get every time. You know, we're in we, we took on the bail industry over the last two years and at the beginning of that campaign, people were asking, you know, why in the world are women with incarcerated loved ones, like, like, why are they involved in this issue? Why is this what you would consider your issue? And I just think, like, haven't you thought about who's paying the bail industry? (laughs) Like, it is women, it is grandmothers and mothers who are putting their houses, um, you know, up as collateral to secure their loved one's release. It is women who are going into debt to, to prison phone companies and to provide support to loved ones inside and you know children left behind on the outside. It's women who ha- are in these positions know inc- no know, know what the the ugliness of our criminal legal system firsthand and are experiencing the life altering impacts despite perhaps never having seen the inside of a cell and i think that is something that we cannot lose sight of in the midst of you know our our conversations about the criminal justice system you know meanwhile you know women of course are being incarcerated at a rate that is outpacing that of men 80% of women in jails are mothers and so the the ways in which we are looking at these issues. Uh, you know, we talk about intersectionality. and I think we, we so often like to kind of throw around that word, but to really commit ourselves to intersectional struggle means that we need to see the ways in which our systems are designed to harm women and communities of color. And I think in our criminal justice conversations, we, you know, I just haven't found us talking about women a lot, or certainly not enough. And that's something that that I, I care about from a multitude of angles. One that looks strategic. I believe we need women um, and their persuasive and powerful voices to fuel this movement. I also believe that we need women to be able to understand. And let me say also, we need women and trans women and people. We need queer communities. We need gender non-conforming people in order to really address the ways in which patriarchy is a central motor of our continuous kind of constant need to choose punitive, uh, controlling, uh, carceral solutions to harm. Those things are tied up in in values of patriarchy as well as values of of white supremacy. And if we're not going to get to those kinds of root causes, then we're not going to get to the, I think the aims that we're all driving towards.
0: Now, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, that was my first reaction going back to Eric Holder's reaction. I thought, of course, you know, of course women are, are, you know, taking on this burden and and, and it hadn't occurred to me. It hadn't dawned on me before. Right. Um, And I want to go back to that stat that you mentioned. You said one in four women has an incarcerated loved one, one in four, which is incredible. But then also I think you said one in two Black women or women of color has an incarcerated loved one. Is that right? Yes, one in two Black women. Mm -hmm. And then so you you define this as a a women's health crisis. How is this a women's health crisis? In what way?
1: So we recently published a report called Because She's Powerful in which we um, interviewed and surveyed over 2,000 women from 46 states across the country, and this was these were women who had uh, who themselves have incarcerated loved ones who uh, led this project and this this survey, um, designed the questions and set out to really do this research because what we were seeing was that academia was not doing it, and so what we found was that the common thread and the thing that I think over the last almost five years of me running the leading organization of advocacy and support of women with incarcerated loved ones, the the, the through line in all of the stories and the, the encounters that I've had has been this feeling of deep isolation. And it was one of the things that we noticed early on, before I even Started when I started just at the beginning of thinking about starting SE, I remember talking to a woman in Louisiana, and I was telling her about this idea that I had to start an organization, and she said, "You know, when I went through this, when my son became incarcerated, there were two occasions upon which I nearly took my life." And she, you know, pulled me aside to tell me this, and and it was such a kind of deep. Um, kind of heart-wrenching moment where she shared this with me as though it was her first time telling anybody. Um and she said, you know, do not give up on this. Um you need to start. You need to this, we need this. And since then, we've built this loving and powerful community of women with incarcerated loved ones at SE and and have seen over and over again the ways in which women struggle with the mental health impacts of having their families torn apart by mass incarceration policy and those that are closest to them who define our family units um, being you know, caged hundreds of miles away and, uh, and all of the kind of attenuating kind of criminalization and this marginalization that comes with that. Social isolation has been something that we were really nervous to talk about at the beginning, and I thought, you know i've I've wanted to say for a long time like because of mass incarceration, women are dying. And I'm not just talking about, you know, women who are dying inside jail cells like Sandra Bland. I'm talking about that this is an issue that is that is even larger. i'm 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 looking at women like Vanita Browder who, you know, not too long after her son, who was incarcerated in Rikers Island pre-trial as a teenager for something that was later, you know, he was later um, a case that was later dismissed. You know, he suffered over a thousand days inside an adult facility where he was tortured and abused and and, and left very different than he came in um, uh, in such a negative way that he took his own life. Right. And that story, that is a story that we hear about when we think about pretrial reform and bail reform and the kind of atrocities of of our bail system. But we fail for whatever reason to mention that within a very short time period later, his mother dies of what news reports would, would come to say of a broken heart. You know, she should be counted in the casualties of this uh, of the war on drugs, of mass incarceration, and our kind of addiction to locking people up um, and throwing away the key. You
0: know, one of the things that always stayed with me was, you know, the personal accounts of women who had incarcerated loved ones, right? The words lonely and isolation, you know, I kept reading that over and over again. And, you know, that was that was a theme. Being incarcerated. It breaks up communities and it's intended to to isolate people from society. I mean, that that's the whole point, you know, but what that means is that everyone who's peripheral to them, you know, they also experience this isolation, right? They're also isolated in a sense, even though they aren't locked up. You know, there's this sense of guilt by association. Also, you know, one other point is that, you know, talking about women's loneliness, just talking about women's loneliness generally, you know, you run the risk when you bring that up of people dismissing it as being, you know, a non-issue or not important. You know, talking about loneliness is unimportant or trite, right? Especially in the context of something as big as criminal justice. You know, people only want to talk about this in the context of policy or legislation or, or the cost of it. And they, they, they kind of want to remove the emotional element of it. it, you know, but you just, you just can't do that. You know, so I, I commend you for highlighting that piece of this struggle.
1: So what I want to say about this is that it was really hard to talk about at first that this was a woman's crisis because I, I was afraid to tell people like, you know, there's this loneliness, there's this isolation. I was afraid that what people would say would be like, oh, you know, oh, so what? <laughs> and and why is that such a big deal? You know, oh, you know, women are lonely. And we know that so often that when you're talking about uh, women's health in general, it gets minimized and disregarded. If it's paid attention to at all, it's last on the agenda, right? We know this is the pattern. And so thinking about trying to uplift women with incarcerated loved ones as as representing a major crisis in women's health was an uphill climb because of the context and the stigma attached to having a loved one behind bars in the first place. And so a couple things changed that. I think one was actually the passing of Anita Browder, was that we were able to say like, look, here is an example of what we see all of the time. We are seeing these kinds of mental health effects that look like suicidality that look like, you know, severe depression, which if you understand what's happening to, because of mass incarceration is, is understandable and expected perhaps, but but for some reason we're not discussing it. Um, and the second thing that happened was that I was fortunate enough to have an opportunity to hear the former Surgeon General of this country speak, um, Dr. Gupta. And when he spoke, he talked so persuasively about, um, and from a, a deep Sense of conviction about the fact that today in the United States, our health crisis is one of isolation, of loneliness. He said, We have a crisis of loneliness. (laughs) And I thought, This is incredible. This is what we've been seeing, you know. And I went up to him after hearing him talk and I said, You know, can we talk more about this? I want to understand where you think this is coming from. And he said, You know, I'm spending less time digging into the root causes. So what I'm looking at is the the health impacts and how prevalent this these feelings of loneliness are across our society and community. And I thought, well, we can fill in that gap. I can tell you that, you know, for the last 40 years, the United States has been on a mission to separate people from each other, to separate ourselves from our loved ones. If you think about the point of incarceration, Incarceration, that's what it's designed to do. It is designed to separate us um, with bars and concrete and distance and stigma. It is creating social isolation at such a large scale, and particularly in black and brown communities, that what we have called it at SE Justice Group in the report that we just published Called because she's powerful, we call it political isolation. We think this is actually a whole new level <laughs> of, of kind of social crisis that needs to be dealt with, and that if we can name it, we can also address it. And so we've named it political isolation because we see it as, as fundamentally weakening the political power of women and of communities of color, particularly black and brown women. We are, through our strategy, at SE Justice Group addressing this hat on.
0: I think that's actually the point I was making earlier about, you know, there's so much stigma around criminality. And what happens is that anyone by association, right, if someone is accused of a crime, right, anyone associated with that person, the parent, the family, the children are also stigmatized. And I think that's also part of the isolation, right? And another thing that we don't acknowledge is that, let's say a person's sentenced to 10 years that 10 years of the person who is going to be incarcerated is also a sentence for anyone associated with that person. They have to live a life of parallel trauma on the outside of, you know, visiting and worrying and you know all of the money that that's required and that's something that we don't we don't talk about very often. And you know, I was reading through some of the stories in your report like the woman you mentioned who encouraged you to keep going. I was reading some of the stories and there was also another woman who said something to the effect of you know, she had no one to talk to because no one could relate. Right. Hmm. And, you know, and I would imagine that, you know, not only would she not have anyone to talk to because maybe there is no one else in her community that has someone who's incarcerated, but, you know, maybe there's some shame involved, right. Just because of how we stigmatize people who are in the system.
1: Absolutely. And I think the impact of shame on our social justice movement and our criminal justice reform movement is something that, has been um, a really, really large barrier because people don't want to come and speak out at community meetings and at board of supervisors meetings and um, you know at the state house and in political spaces to help shed light on what's happening. If they feel like they're going to be further, further marginalized by having done so. There are also some very real consequences. You know, we found the system to be quite mean in terms of retaliation, um, and so that a lot of people are rightfully afraid that their loved ones inside might suffer if they come out and say something about the ways in which they're being treated or abused.
0: Can you tell me about some of the the hidden financial costs and the financial burden that the women incur? Right. I mean, I think one of them is eviction. And
1: then there are also all of these other costs, you know, the bail system. So there are a number of different economic costs. There's actually a fantastic report called Who Pays that details the costs of incarceration on families. And throughout the entire process, from the moment of arrest to the moment of sentencing, um, and then throughout incarceration, the family, usually a woman, is taking on an extraordinary amount of financial responsibility. So that looks like from paying for attorneys to paying bail bonds industry um, fees and uh, court fees, any restitution debt, it looks like taking on the costs of the commissary support we pay to be able to talk to our loved ones via phone. There's this, I think, misunderstanding that because it really is so expensive to incarcerate people at the rate at which we're doing that people inside are getting all kinds of amenities or something. That is not the case. It is um, the extent to which you know m- many people are even getting fed. It's because loved ones on the outside are paying money for commissary and for people to be able to supplement their diets by purchasing food themselves. Same thing with hygiene products. Those are oftentimes costs that family members take on in order to make sure that a loved one inside has very basic necessities that he or she might need. So those kinds of costs I think oftentimes don't get discussed, but then also when someone comes home because our reentry laws are so restrictive that when someone comes home, you know, there's restrictions on where they can live, on what kinds of jobs they can take. They're oftentimes usually just barred out of the, you know, economy, making money because of all these kinds of background checks and more that and and discrimination against people who have served any time. That means that it is a family member or somebody who is who is helping to care for, financially care for that person until they can get back up on their feet if they can at all, right? And so these are the kinds of economic impacts that we see actually being held primarily by women, which is why mass incarceration has been a driver of women's poverty as well as a way in which women who are already in poverty have not been able to you know, climb out because of all of these kinds of barriers and taxes and fees uh, that come from our mass incarceration policies.
0: So you describe the bail money system as deadly. How how exactly is it deadly?
1: Oh my goodness. Well, <laughs> um, sorry. Yeah, the the our system of money bail is killing people. Um, we know this because of I think stories that we're at this point all very too familiar with, and um, Sandra Bland, who you know was. Was held on bail, died in a cell in Texas. Khalif Browder, who had he been able to pay, had he or his mother been able to pay for his bail, would have been let out and wouldn't have wouldn't have suffered all of the abuse and the torture and degradation that he ended up suffering while inside Rikers. Right, like because people right now there are like four hundred fifty thousand people almost who are incarcerated pre-trial in this country and who can't get out because they can't afford to pay bail. And the life in a cell is, is very, very dangerous to your health, to your stability. It is deadly um, and it can be deadly. Bail keeps people in. <laughs> it's been, I think, seen as one of the most heinous perpetrators of criminal injustice that we, that we have in our system.
0: You know what would what would replace the bail system though? I, I don't know. I mean, because it's a, it, just on its face, it's not very logical, right?
1: Absolutely. So today, just so people know, today in the U.S., when you get arrested in most places, what will happen is that a cash bail is set according to a bail schedule, which is essentially like a chart that assigns an amount of money depending on the charge. So if you're charged with possession, it might, means you might have to pay. $5,000 to get out pretrial if you are charged with carrying an unlicensed firearm, you might have to pay $10,000 to get out, etc. And the system's stated purpose is to provide this as a mechanism by which people come back to court. The problem is that money is not actually what works to make sure that people come to their court date. What works is transportation and stable housing and text messages um, being well enough to attend your court proceedings and so forth. And so meanwhile, you know, we have this system and uh, while being ineffective, it has also been the way, while well, being ineffective <laughs> um, at doing what it's supposed to do, it's also the central way by which we keep incarceration rates high. So DAs are able to go in to, you know, to see a charged person and say, hey, i you know, I know that you're, you're stuck inside this cell, you can't pay your bail, but you could get out today, we can make that happen, but plea to these convictions. And that's how plea deals get signed. Um, and that's how we so easily, so often find that people end up with these convictions and then they're in the system. Bail has, has been the way in which we've been able to incarcerate millions of people in this country. What we need instead is what you know, many other places are doing. You know, United States is one of two countries in the world that has a money bail system you know i think for us what we're advocating for is a system by which we prioritize liberty. (laughs) We we look at ways that people can get the support that they need to come back for trial or for court. So housing and text reminders are some really exciting new organizations that have been developing ways to get people back to court that look like transportation support or reminders via technology or text. And, And those things are incredibly effective. And so we actually have a lot of ways at our fingertips to to make sure that people, I guess, are coming back to court. Um, but I, I think also we have to look upstream a little bit and say, well, why are there so many people who are being being charged and arrested and criminalized in the first place? And so those are some of the bigger questions that were, that we're also tasked with with figuring out as advocates. We decided to take on the bail industry and go hard. We, we approached it from a corporate divestment standpoint where we were able to, because of the voices of women and women coming together, were able to um, really partner with Google and able to get the largest corporate divestment from the bail industry to happen when Google and Facebook banned bail bonds advertising on their platforms. That was because of women who have been used and abused and exploited by this industry for years coming together, approaching kind of these corporate folks and saying, Hey, (laughs) um, you know, there's something that I think you ought to know about how this is impacting our lives. And I think that is a, a really powerful example of of what what is possible. And then finally we um we uh, put, you know, do direct actions. So we are part of a collective called the National Bailout, which is a group of Black organizers from across the country who lead Black-centered race justice work and are together have, have been bailing out women out of jails before Mother's Day for the last two years. And, you know, while we wait for the lawyers to do their thing, while we wait for corporations to get the message or feel the pressure, like, we're just gonna raise the money and get get our people home. (laughs) And that's what, that's the beauty of direct actions.
0: Well, you know what? I'm really, really moved by the work that you do. I think it's, it's really, really important, obviously. And I'm really, really proud of the work. So, you know, keep it up. Thank
1: you. Thank <laughs> it's you. really
0: important. And thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today.
1: Of course. Thank you. It was a real pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for listening. To find more about Gina's work and her organization, please visit the SE Justice Group at sejusticegroup.org. And SE is spelled E-S-S-I-E. Please also follow The Electorate on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and that's at Electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight.